Thank you. Please be seated. this weekend we continue the series that we've been in for the past few weeks called A Better Story. And we've been looking at stories of real life people like you and I found in the book of Acts whose world collided with Jesus and as a result their life was never the same. And so one thing that we have constantly learned in this series is that whenever you and I hand the pen to Jesus, the pen of our life, he can always write a much better story than we can ever fathom or even come up with on our own. Now, a lot of us walk in here today with pretty clean, respectable, put-together stories. And what I mean by that is that your testimony is boring. I mean, you don't have some chapter of your life where you ventured off the deep end and then had some dramatic conversion back to Christ. No, I mean, for a majority of your life, you've not only known about God, but you've actually known God. And that's awesome. I mean, praise God for that. I hope one day that my children will be able to look back and say that they have a pretty boring testimony. But you see, then there are others of us in here who have really dark, broken, messed up stories. I mean, you were, you were abused as a child. It could be that for years you've blamed yourself for your parents' divorce. You've recently got, gotten addicted to meth or weed or pornography. You're going through a horrible divorce right now. And so it could be that as you sit here and you hear us talking about living a better story, you silently sit there and think to yourself, could that happen to me? I mean, could God really redeem and restore my story? Could he really give me and offer me a better way to live? Or have I just, have I ventured too far away? I mean, if I've run too far off for him to handle and for him to re- redeem? I mean, I've caused a train wreck in my life. God, can you really handle that? Now, the story that we're going to look at is about a guy by the name of Saul in Acts chapter 9 today. But before we get there, his introduction is really in chapters 7 and 8. And I'm going to read to you in just a moment the very first impression that we have of Saul. But before I do that, you and I both know that we want to give a first impression when we meet people for the first time, right? I mean, we want to put our best foot forward. At the end of the day, introductions matter. I mean, who on their very first date sits down with that significant other and says, hey, you you just need to know that I'm a control freak. Uh, I mean, it's all about me. I struggle with worry. I'm a really insecure person. Uh, Five years from now, I hope to have a really big beer belly. (laughs) And and that's just the ladies. Uh, Now, here's the thing. We want to put our best foot forward because we want people to think the best of us when we first meet them. I mean, introductions matter, right? The last thing we would ever want to happen is for someone's first impression of us to be tarnished by all the bad choices that we've maybe made in the past. And so with that in mind, here's the snapshot of who, uh, the snapshot of what we're given about a guy by the name of Saul. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, look at what's said about him. But Saul, he was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house. What was he doing? Well, he was dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. He's talking about believers here. 
Now, if you're following along in your Bibles or on your phone, you might want to underline that word destroy. That's the same word used to describe when lions, tigers, or any type of wild animal chases after its prey and mutilates and tears apart its flesh. You see, that's the picture that we have of what Saul was literally doing to the body of Christ at this particular point in time. He was hunting the church. Now talk about a good first impression, right? I mean, what an introduction. And so if there's one word that we could just throw out there to define Saul's chapter at this particular point in his life, we wouldn't look any further than the word rage. You see, Saul was very hostile to the gospel message. Therefore, he went about persecuting, killing, and destroying Christians. It was something he just couldn't stand. But don't miss the point. You see, we're given this graphic picture of Saul's prior life, of his previous chapter, to magnify the redeeming work of God that he's about to experience in our text. Spoiler alert, Saul is about to undergo a massive transformation. He's going to meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so if rage defines his past, then I don't think we should look any further than the word redemption to describe how God is going to go about writing his better story. Now, redemption is one of those words that we throw around a lot, especially here at church. Yet when was the last time we really considered the full weight of its meaning? And so before we go any further, I think it's really important that we land on a common definition here. Now, this may sound cheesy, cliche, or uh, like a bumper sticker you might see on the back of someone's car, but here's how we're going to define redemption today, okay? Here it is. Redemption, it's not just about being rescued from something, but it's about being saved for something, all right? So redemption is not just about being rescued from something, but it's about being saved for something. You see, there is a difference between being saved and finding redemption. And so the moment that Saul became a follower of Jesus, he was not only freed from hell, he wasn't just merely forgiven for all the sin in his life. No, rather, by God's grace, he was given reason, purpose, and mission in his life. And so the one question that I want to kind of linger in here today is this. Could that be true for you? I mean, is it possible that Jesus, his grace, is not only sufficient enough to deliver you from the penalty of sin, but it's so great and sufficient that he wants to use your personality, your abilities, and your giftings and individual wirings to advance his kingdom and be a part of his mission here on earth? I mean, is that even possible for you in light of where you've come from today? And so if you have your Bibles, what I want you to do is go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Acts. Uh, Today we're going to be in chapter 9. Acts is the fifth book in the back of your Bibles in the New Testament, uh, right after the Gospel of John and right before the book of Romans. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, there is a black Bible right in front of you in the pew, or if you're worshiping with us in the chapel, right underneath that seat in front of you. I believe it's on page 777 uh, in that Bible. That's our free gift for you. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. Get acquainted uh, with it it because we believe that the power... Uh, The power of the word has the power to change your life. Now, you need to know that Luke, the author of the book of Acts found here in Scripture, which, by the way, the book of Acts is just kind of a blueprint of what was going on during the early church, kind of a, a biography of what was happening. Now, this story that we're about to read is so incredibly important that Luke mentions it two other times in his account, all right? So let's pick up in verse 1, chapter 9. Here's what we read. 
Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogue in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way, talking about Christians, that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And so just to give you an idea how serious Saul was in persecuting Christians, this journey would have taken him six days one way. It was 135 miles from Jerusalem. And you see, his motivation was to keep the Jewish faith pure and undefiled because he saw Christianity, he saw the gospel as this false religion that was leading people astray. You see, Saul was sincere. He was just sincere about the wrong things. Just last weekend, uh, ISIS surfaced a video on social media of shooting and beheading 30 Ethiopian Christians in Libya who refused to convert to Islam. I can't think of any movement in recent history that's been more evil, vile, and dark than these extremists. But you see, what's equally disturbing is the fact that these Muslims sincerely believe that they are right and they are earning the attention of their God. You see, it is possible to be sincere just sincerely wrong. And that's why sincerity must always be rooted in truth or else it always results in destruction. And so for Saul, his misguided sincerity led him to be an obstacle to the one true God. Pick up in verse three, let's continue along. As he, talking about Saul, was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now what's interesting about Jesus' confrontation with Saul is that he makes no distinction between himself, talking about Christ, and the church. And so that's why when you serve the church, you really serve Jesus, You see, when you become one with Christ, the moment of your salvation, you become united with his body as well. This is why just merely attending a church is not what God has in mind for you for your life. You see, church is not about a show that's for our entertainment. It's not about having the right worship style that maybe meets your preferences. It's not about being fed or who preaches. You see, the bride of Christ is so much more than all of those things. It is a family for those who are lonely and hurting. It is a hospital for those who are bound up in brokenness. It is a lighthouse in the midst of this really dark culture. It's an airport terminal reminding us that this place is temporary and that we're almost home. It's an AA meeting where we can meet with other people who struggle and be reminded that we're in this together. You see, it's a, it's a boot camp where we train and we prepare for our mission in this world. You see, the bride of Christ is the most unstoppable force this world has ever seen, and it will not be limited by any type of law or regulation. Nations may rise and fall, but the church will remain. Fortune 500 companies will die out with time, but the church will always be here. In opposition and persecution, the church doesn't just survive, but it actually thrives. Why? Well, because our founder crashed his own funeral and he hasn't been held down since then. You see, see when Jesus, when Jesus remains the focus of our life, when he remains the center of this church, we are unstoppable. But shh, 
don't tell this to ISIS. Because what they don't realize is that they are really advancing the name of Jesus. You see, with every head that is severed, with every Christian that is persecuted and is killed and murdered, they are advancing the cause of Christ because people, outsiders, see that not even death can contain the power of the gospel. If you are so willing to die for the truth of the gospel, that means you are absolutely true and sincere in in, in your belief and that you are right in your direction. And so that's why God continually tells us to suffer. That's why he tells us to suffer for his name's sake. Look at verse 7. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. So confused at this point. And so Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days, and he did not eat or drink. You see, the presence of God was just too much for these people to handle. I want you to imagine for a moment how humbling this was for Saul to be led by the hand the rest of the way to Damascus. I mean, he literally couldn't put one foot in front of the other without the direction of his buddies. You see, they were covering really rocky terrain, probably with cliffs and ravines, and one simple fall for him could have ended his life altogether. And so in a split second, imagine this, Saul went from being the leader of this really zealous army to not even having the ability to walk by himself. But it's in Saul's blindness that he really began to see. Now here's one thing that you might want to write down that doesn't really make much sense on the surface, but it's this. Sometimes, sometimes God allows us to be wounded for our own good. Sometimes God allows us to be wounded for our own good. About, um, about a month ago, my three-year-old son awoke us at about midnight complaining that he couldn't breathe. And so I immediately threw on some clothes and we headed to the emergency room. When we got there, they put a mask on his face to give him breathing treatments. He almost uh, instantly started breathing better. Come to find out, he just had really bad croup that night. Well, after we had been there about an hour, the doctor came in and informed us that he was going to need to give John Ryman a steroid shot. And I could tell that as the doctor was trying to explain this to my three-year-old son, that it wasn't connecting, he wasn't really getting it. In fact, he was just getting more and more afraid the, the more the doctor was talking. And so I crawled up beside my son in the hospital bed there, and I just held him. The doctor turned around and pulled that shot out of the package. And as he uh, penetrated my son's skin with that needle, I looked down at his eyes and it instantly flooded with tears and he just started screaming his head off. I kept holding him and I said, John Ryman, it's okay. Sorry, it's only gonna hurt for a little while. Daddy is here with you. Things are gonna be okay. It's, It's only gonna hurt for a moment. Now, my son couldn't possibly imagine why his daddy would allow him to endure such such pain. I mean, for him, there was nothing worse. But you see, in his limited perspective, what he didn't realize was that temporary pain was necessary for his long-term healing. I mean, what loving parent would withhold life-saving medication from their child simply because they didn't want him or her to hurt for a little bit of time? And so in the same way, God allows us, he allows us to be wounded so that we might cling to him and we might be more and more dependent upon him. But you see, God is not some cosmic force that is distant in the midst of our suffering. In fact, one day, maybe you'll be able to look back and realize that he crawled up beside you in the hospital bed and he was 
not just holding you the entire time, but he carried you through that. And he kept telling you over and over again, it's okay. It's only going to last for a little while. Daddy's got you. You see, Saul was blind for three days, but those three days probably felt like an eternity for him. Yet it was in his temporary handicap that God broke through his pride and his zealous agenda. You see, suffering in our life will either make us run away from God or it will make us run to God. Now, when we say that God um, not only rescues us from something but for something, this doesn't always pan out the way that we think that it should. You see, sometimes our greatest wounds become the platform for the message that we ultimately carry. I mean, my wound is, is cancer. I mean, six years ago, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and had I not gone through all the chemotherapy, the radiation, the fatigue, and all the insecurity that can come with that, and the hair loss, I wouldn't be able to identify with so many of you that have endured such a circumstance in your life or have experienced the loss of a loved one who went through that. I wouldn't be able to say as confidently that God's grace really is sufficient regardless of what may show up on the PET scan. The writer of Hebrews, which is interesting in the New Testament, he goes so far to say that our wounds in life can be seen as God's discipline upon us. Now, when we hear that word discipline, we instantly have negative connotations, don't we? I mean, how can that be seen as good? And that seems a little bit harsh, right? But you see, isn't discipline far from bad if the ultimate purpose is salvation for your soul and for those around you? Or what if it is stripping you of the illusion of these false saviors that you have built your life upon? Hebrews chapter 12 says it like this. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so how are you allowing God to redeem your wounds? What is God teaching you in the midst of your difficulty? Let's keep going with this story a little bit. Check out verse 10. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him in a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things that this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Saul's reputation preceded him a little bit here. Ananias knew what he was getting himself into and it scared him to death. Verse 15 is perhaps the most significant verse in this text. Check it out. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my what? Chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as to the people of Israel and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You see, these two verses here show us that God isn't just interested in saving us, but he specializes in redeeming us as well. You see, Saul wasn't just rescued from something, but he was saved for something. Now, that specific purpose for Saul was pastoring, preaching, and church planning. God took the qualities that defined Saul for a majority of his life, things like passion, influence, intelligence, stubbornness, and public speaking. And whereas before Saul was using those things to stop the church, God came and redeemed them and then used those exact same qualities to advance his church literally all around the globe. 
You probably know that Saul would later change his name to Paul, signifying his newfound identity in Christ. Paul would make three massive missionary journeys to cities around the Mediterranean Sea. Now, what's interesting is that Paul would always strategically start churches in large, influential cities. He did not go to rural areas. And so Paul started churches in the first century Roman world version of New York City, Los Angeles, Miami, Las Vegas, Dallas, London, Dubai, and Beijing. Why did he do this? Well, because larger cities always provide greater opportunities for rapid multiplication. I mean, cities are where people are. Cities shape culture and aren't to be avoided as followers of Jesus, but are, but are to be embraced for the sake of Jesus' mission. You see, these churches that Paul started would later invade Europe, and roughly over a thousand years later, those Christians would land on a certain continent known today as North America. Now, time out for a second. I thought a lot this week about why God would use a guy like Saul to literally advance his mission halfway around the globe. I mean, here Saul was this guy who was persecuting and demolishing the first century church. God looks at him and points and says, yep, he's going to be my guy. I mean, why would he do that? Well, I think the immediate answer is that if, Saul can, if, if God can use a guy like Saul to change and transform anyone, he can deal with any of us and handle any circumstance, Right? I mean, the person that you and I would choose would be the person raised in Sunday school, has the fish on the back of their car, knows every line to Veggie Tales, and only listens to Caleb. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what's predictable. But instead, God comes in and uses the last person that we would select. It's an inspiring story of God's power and his transformation. But honestly, I think it's stories like this found in the Bible that can frustrate a lot of us and make us feel as if we are more distant from God than we really are. What do I mean by that? Well, you pray that your friend would be healed, but she, she still died of a brain aneurysm. It could be that when you open up the Bible, you read about the supernatural power of God. You've prayed that it would be, it would be breathed into your marriage, but things are still lifeless. You keep giving your addiction over to God time and time again, but it seems to just have a stronghold upon you. It could be that you want your spouse to come to know the Lord, but he just wants nothing to do with church. He never even, he never even will attend with you. He will, he will never attend with you. Or maybe you want to have a child, but you still can't seem to get pregnant. You ever been there before? I know I have. I mean, I can't think of a more frustrating place to be than to know that God is able only for him to seem distant and silent in the midst of our circumstances. But can I tell you what God is teaching me in the midst of of my frustrations, the struggle is good. The struggle is good. It's good because it shows that there is still life within you and there is a desire deep down to please the Lord and to be used by him and to, and to depend more completely upon him. You see, the waiting room of life is never a comfortable place to be, but it's often the place where God does the greatest work in us to prepare us for greater work ahead. Now, sometimes God allows us to question him for a time so that we may be more dependent upon him. Look at verse 17 and see what Ananias does here. <clears throat> so Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands upon him and said, Brother Saul. Now, this is an extremely significant moment for a lonely individual like Saul. You see, in spite of fear and what others would think, Ananias approaches Saul and he calls him brother. Brother. Now, don't miss how huge this was. 
He is declaring Saul a family member and a legitimate child of God. Now, we don't know what Ananias' gifts were. We don't read that he was some multi-talented man. We're unsure about his profession or maybe even family status. But do you know one thing that is pretty certain about Ananias? He was available. He was willing. Let me put it to you this way. Availability is always better than talent. You see, God is far more impressed with the available person who has little talent than the person who has a lot of talent but has little availability. And you see, in a frenetic paced culture, this is a really rare find. Let's keep going with this. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. And so this was chapter one of Saul's better story that Jesus began writing for him. You see, when you give your life to Christ, he will not only stand in your place as a substitute for the wrath of God, but he offers to write a better story because he contains the ability to write a better story than you and I could ever imagine or write on our own. And so again, this question that we're going to come back to is this. Could that be true for you? I mean, is it possible that God not only promises a way out of hell for you when it comes to eternity, but his grace is so great and sufficient that he has a spot for you to join him in his mission here on earth? Now, when I talk about mission, that sounds really great, but at the same time, it probably sounds a little bit unrealistic for some of you in light of where you've come from and in light of your stories. And so let me make this a little bit more personal for you, wherever you're at in your journey. First Peter chapter 4 says it like this. Each of you, talking about every believer, every follower of Jesus, should use whatever gift, keyword there, you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Now, the obvious important word here is that word gift. You might want to underline it or highlight it in your Bibles. Here's the thing. Like Paul, the key to redeeming your story is to allow God to use your gifts for serving others. And so if you're a follower of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, God has given you something, some unique ability so that you can contribute to his mission. What does this personally look like for you? I wish it were that easy. But here's something that may help you out as you determine what God wants to do with your life. Your passion, whatever it is that gets you excited, whatever it is that gets you out of bed in the morning, plus your gifting, what are you naturally good at? Plus, training, that comes into the context of the local church providing this, equals your redemption. And so passion plus training equals your redemption. One of the purposes of the church is to help you figure this out. Now realize that what you're passionate about may not be your gifting. I mean, I'm passionate about music. But there's a reason why David has not asked me to be a part of the choir. Todd's passion is jokes. But it's not his gifting. I mean, I love the idea of being handy, but as you probably know, I can't even properly hang a picture frame on the wall. All right? And so if you hate kids, you probably shouldn't volunteer in our children's ministry. It's just that easy. And so the intersection of your passion with your gifting more than likely is the sweet spot for how God wants to redeem your story. 
Let me tell you about some of our volunteers who aren't just checking off tasks on to-do lists, but they're being the body of Christ week in and week out. They're allowing God to redeem their stories. Uh, We have one section host here. uh, I won't mention by name, but uh, she serves on one of our Sunday teams. A few months ago, she met a lady who was going through a really difficult time in her section, in her little community. And so she sat down with her after service and just talked with her. It became evident to this this volunteer, that this lady needed to be a part of a support group that meets here on Monday nights. And so rather than just pointing her in that direction and giving her the necessary information, which would have been totally acceptable, in fact, it's what we teach our section host to do, instead what she did was she cleared her calendar every Monday night for a semester and she went to the support group with her so that she wouldn't be alone. This person is passionate about people She's really gifted with a caring heart. And as a result, God is using her to build and be the body of Christ. Nick and Deanna Chapman, they serve in our children's ministry. Each week, they welcome parents and children who are checking in. They probably welcomed you at some point. And you see, they are serving as a picture of the welcome that they've received into the family of God. They're modeling the gospel. You see, they love children. It's something they're passionate about. They have a unique ability to connect with kids and young families. And so with each hello, with each handshake, and every dirty diaper they change, they are helping build and be the body of Christ here at Crossroads. Every Sunday, I walk into this worship center really early, and I see selfless men and women walk in and out of their rows, picking up trash so that you can have an exceptional worship experience. They don't mind serving behind the scenes. They don't need a lot of credit. But you know what? They do have the gift of serving, and they're willing to do anything necessary to build and be the body of Christ. I mean, I haven't even begun to tell you about our middle and high school small group leaders. You may not be aware of the volunteers in our worship ministry who raise enough money to help single moms out to afford groceries for a week. And so if you're serving in some capacity, thank you. I mean, you are modeling for the rest of us what it means to follow after the one who took a basin of water, washed his disciples' feet on the night that he was betrayed. And I realize that there are a lot of us in here who aren't yet serving. And you may be wondering right about now, I mean, where do I go? What do I do? What is my next step? Well, we want to make this really easy, simple, and practical for you. We as a church are really committed to helping you identify this spot in our ministry, in our church, that God may be wanting to use you to help live a better story. And so if that's where you're at, I want to challenge you to attend what's called Serve Tour. A Serve Tour is uh, an experiential um, tour that goes around uh, our building here on a given Sunday, and you have a front row seat to what each volunteer team does here on a weekend and during a week, uh, how each team contributes uh, to building and being the body of Christ, how we are being disciples, making disciples. And so we offer this on the fourth Sunday of every single month. Uh, For the next two months, we're going to offer it twice on that fourth Sunday so that we can have a spot open for you. And at the end of Serve Tour, more than likely, you will have uh, an opportunity to join the specific team that really resonates with you, the, one, the, the team that you think, man, this is, this, is, this is what I was made for. I think I could really uh, get a lot of joy and thrive off this. Now, if you show up at Serve Tour and you don't want to serve anywhere, that's totally fine too. It's not a timeshare presentation, all right? <laughs> now, I have purposely not put a little section on the connection card for you to sign up for this because you know what? I don't want you to be guilted into this. I don't. I mean... Drive-by guiltings are horrible motivators, (laughs) all right? 
So what I want you to do, if you aren't serving, is I want you just to go home. I want you to think about it and pray and ask God, not if he wants you to serve, because he does, but pray and ask where God might be leading you to serve, to build and to be the body of Christ. Now, you don't have to build and be the body of Christ. I mean, Jesus has been doing this with his committed followers for 2,000 years, and you know what? He's really good at it. But I would say you get to. I mean, imagine what your life would be to join your sovereign creator king in redeeming his creation and pointing people to Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's a better story. That's a better way to live. Will you join us? Let's pray. God, it's so true that you don't just save us, but you redeem us. And Lord, I just think about my life and how messed up I am and just how quirky I can be at times, but but God, time and time again, you come in, you redeem those qualities and characteristics that you've, you've put inside me. And God, there's just nothing more significant that any of us can do than to, to be a part of the greatest movement this world has ever seen, and that is the church. But God, when we serve the church, we serve you. And so God, thank you for that opportunity. And Lord, just redeem our wounds, continue to help us find purpose in the midst of our suffering. And Lord, we thank you that though we are broken, we can still be vessels for the building and the expanding of your kingdom. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.